This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Over 2,000 athletes from all over the country took part in the marathon. It started at noon in St Stephen's Green and the runners made their way to the Phoenix Park, Finglas, Rahimi, Clontarf, Baldbridge, Donnybrook and returning again to St Stephen's Green. They're going for silver, they're going for bronze. John Tracy has 100 metres to go. In the past, Ireland have won bronze medals. John Caldwell, Freddie Gilroy, Sachs Byrne, Jim McCourtney, Russell. They've won gold. Pat O'Callaghan, Point, Bob Tessel, Ron Delaney. They've won silvers for John McNally, Fred Teeth, Wilkinson, Wilkinson. And for the 13th time, an Irish medal goes to John Tracy. The crowd stands for the Irishman from Villiers Town and Waterford. The little man with a great heart. We paved the way for Tracy. You know, a lot of people who had kind of qualified for games and runners that John Tracy probably would have considered ordinary type runners, and he could see, well, gee, they're they're qualifying for this, that, and the other, and here am I, and, and bang, he comes out and produces the performance. Back then, we were kind of seen as the Kenyans. The whole thing was to get Irish athletes. We trained hard, very hard, and raced re fairly frequently. I think we just had a hunger. We just wanted it. I always think too what we had was a great sense of belief in ourselves. I was 18 or 19 at that stage. Marathon was the distance that was going to suit me. You know, I did the cross country and all the other stuff, the faster stuff before that. Marathon running has never been as popular in Ireland as it is today. In 2016 alone, 20,000 people ran the Dublin Marathon. What makes you run all these marathons? Why are you running all of them? Because I love running. It's a great way of relaxing and getting it out of the head. The people make it. People right. in Dublin. There's something special about people in Dublin. They come out, they give their full support. It's just, it's just magic. Where did this popularity to run marathons begin? It's time to tell a story about Ireland's love affair with the world's most challenging race, the marathon. From its imperial beginnings to the golden era of Cusick, Tracy, Kiernan and the Hoopers, up to and beyond the Rio Olympic Games. This is the story of Irish marathon running. Before the Dublin Marathon, what are your memories of marathon running in Ireland? Marathon running in Ireland is stuff I picked up from magazines and various things. I met up with the memory man, Olympic broadcasting legend Jimmy McGee, to help me tell the story. Magazine, long distance races. Remember the Balbriggan to Dublin one? And uh, I remember one day it was Harry Thuillard, Lord of Mercy, put me over the microphone, a bit like the one you have there. Out, well, it was a lot more cumbersome than that. Carry it down, down to Hopkins and Hopkins at the corner because it could come up Eden Key, turn right and up towards the GPO. And the man in front was, and at that time, runners had big bubbles around their mouths. And big bubbles coming out of them. And this fellow was up front, and I took an idiotic Jimmy to run beside him and ask him questions. How are you feeling? <laughs> I said, you must be worn out. <laughs> when he got to the pillar, he was able to say two words, and the second one was off. And it was a memory that I have of the, uh, of the marathons, but... Oh, the Billy Martin, but the thing being closed, and the voice arriving at, at, at the stadium, and the place being closed, and I have to go look for the key, and all sorts of make up things. And then, of course, with the Hoopers. Dick Hooper was, uh, and the Dublin Marathon was synonymous. Uh, and there were some good ones. There was Mar, who ran. Oh, there was some. Neil Cusick, of course. Danny McDaid was another good runner. Uh, and the Hooper brothers were fantastic, and who went together to the Olympic Games in Moscow. So there's a lot of things about marathon running that I'll know it's Johnny Hayes, little Johnny Hayes, when Pietro Durando, or was it Durando Pietro, anyway, one way, Peter Durando of Italy, was helped by the officials in 1908, and Johnny Hayes coming behind him uh, won it. Uh, so that was a, a one first. Mara was another one that was very good. Uh, a couple of South Americans. This is before the Africans took over. But Ethiopia and Kenya have their own little battle going on. And uh, God be good to them for it too. But in the middle of all this comes the man from, from Waterford, Villiers Town. And then a couple of lads from Rainey. 
But they keep it going anyway. And in the middle of it all, let's not forget Jerry Kiernan, who had a great run in Los Angeles, which, apart from John Tracy, would have been the best run ever. But how did it all start? Here's how the marathon began. Marathon, in Greece, is where 10,000 Athenians, under the command of the Greek strategist Miltiades, routed the army of King Darius of Persia in 490 BC. A Greek soldier, Pheidippides, was sent to Athens with the joyous tidings. He ran from the plains of Marathon across hills and small streams. The distance of 42 kilometers to Athens, which he ran, subsequently became the modern... As Baron Pierre de Coubertin brought the Olympic Games back to life in 1896, de Coubertin's friend Michel de Brel suggested to put this invented event into the first modern Olympic Games in Athens. This time to run the original course in reverse from Marathon to Athens, which was 40 kilometers, 25 miles in those days. No Irish men were in the field of 17, with Rick Sparin Louis, the first winner of the marathon, in just under three hours, in two hours, 58 minutes and 50 seconds. Louis was rewarded with a gold cup, one million drachma, a ton of chocolate, a year's supply of food, 10 cows and 30 sheep. So much for amateurism. One year and nine days after the first modern Olympic Games marathon, the first Boston marathon was competed for. The granddaddy of all marathons as the wave of marathon running began to take hold of the world. Here in Ireland, the marathon was already taking its roots. While it would be some 12 years, 1909, before Irish streets and roads would host the gruelling distance, athletics in this country under imperial rule was flourishing. And with that, athletes were starting to move up the distances. The first Irish man that would claim an Olympic medal was a Galway man by the name of John J. Daly. Daly had won the 22-mile marathon from Athlone to Moat, in 1902, while winning four Irish cross-country championships. Daly took the boat to the USA when he heard that St. Louis would host the third Olympic Games in 1904. Daly surprised everyone when he took silver in the steeplechase. Four years later, Daly travelled to the unofficial Olympic Games in Athens to compete over the marathon distance. Daly, who travelled without a sponsor, somehow managed to enter the race, even though the USA were not participants. However, the six-foot-tall Galway man wilted in the Greek heat at 15 miles. By 17 miles, he had dropped out of the race after an ankle injury flared up. Keep on running. In May 1907, the International Olympic Committee and the British Olympic Association agreed that the course would be about 25 miles, about 25 miles, in preparation for the London Games 1908. While the organisers hoped to start the race in Windsor Castle with the permission of King Edward, so that members of the public would not interfere with the start, however, the organisers also wanted the race to finish in the Olympic Stadium in front of the Royal Box and the normal finish point for all track races. That was measured pretty easily as the organisers decided to use the Royal Entrance However, shortly before the Games, it was realised that the royal entrance had no entry to the track. To solve this, a route from the road onto the back diagonal to the finish was installed. This additional route was one mile, 385 yards, and it meant that the marathon would be 26 miles plus the 385 yards, a distance that remains until this very day. When the American Johnny Hayes, little Johnny Hayes, the son of two immigrants from Nina, crossed the line for gold, he had completed what is now the standard marathon course. However, Hayes didn't take gold that simply. Italian Dorando Piretri was the first to enter the Olympic Stadium, critically taking a wrong turn. After turning around, Pietri collapsed several times. Jack Andrew, the clerk of this course, and Dr. Michael Burger of the Irish Amateur Athletic Association assisted Pietri over the line. Hayes protested against the Italian who was promptly disqualified, meaning Johnny Hayes of the Irish American Athletic Club was Olympic champion. On the 
26th of May 1909, Irish Athletics hosted their very first marathon over the now standardised course of 26 miles and 385 yards. It was held at Jones's Road in Dublin. The course was 78 laps of the old cycle track that circled the football pitch. Over 25,000 spectators packed into the arena to witness the 16 athletes compete, a venue that a couple of years later was named Crow Park. Galway man Tom Hines was the first man across the line, clocking 2 hours, 51 minutes and 15 seconds. Through this period and through the First World War, athletics fell off the map in Ireland. In 1948, and now independent from British rule, Ireland travelled to the Olympic Games in London. Frank Mulvihill and Joe West became independent Ireland's first Olympic marathoners. It would be a further 12 years in Rome 1960 that Ireland would have Olympic marathon competitors. Denor Harriers Willie Dunn and Bertie Messett with Clonliffe Harriers Jerry McIntyre. From here until Barcelona 1992, Ireland would be represented in every Olympic marathon. At the 64 Games in Tokyo, Jim Hogan was in contention for a medal before dropping out around a 22-mile stage. Hogan would then declare for England and win the 1966 European Championship. Athletics at this stage in Ireland was far from a mass participation sport. 1980 Olympian Pat Hooper, who joined Rohini Shamrock in 1968, explains more. Athletics always had a fairly high profile. Ireland always had a contender when it came to the Olympics. In 1968, it was probably Noel Carroll was the, the top man in the Irish running scene. And even though he didn't get past the semi-finals, I think it was in the 800s, he still uh, had done very well in athletics. Like he had won the three A's three times. And I suppose he was the, the number one athlete at the, mo- at the time. In the Rohini Shamrock and the 40 year annual, the, them getting slagged when they were running through Rohini Village, they kind of shout to Ronnie Delaney and all this kind of stuff. Was that when you were starting out with, with the other guys? Was that what it was like, or had that died down at that stage? I know, like uh, everyone at that time was totally intimidated to run from their house in shorts. And what I used to do was I'd run down as far as the six, the seafront or Fox's Lane and hide my tracksuit bottoms in the, in the bushes and then run along the seafront and then. On my way back, I'd put the tracksuit bottoms on because everyone seemed to legs eleven, and uh, there was it seemed to be a pastime of everyone to throw abuse at runners, you know. And sometimes it uh, became more than just abuse; like they wouldn't be, they weren't slow to throw the ad rock or stick at you. At this stage, in the late sixties and early seventies, the days long before big city marathons. Athletics was an elitist sport, as Pat explains. Well, I'd say the track and field was as big then as it was now. The standard in the, the road races was good. Like, you weren't really tolerated if you couldn't break six-minute miles, you know, not like now. And uh, unless you could run, if you couldn't run less than six-minute miles in road races, you really weren't appreciated and really weren't uh, wanted. And uh, that was one of the harsher lessons of it, you know, so... Uh, if you couldn't break 36 minutes for 10k, there was no point in your running races because uh, you weren't really tolerated. Pat Hooper's first major marathon victory came in the old Dublin County Marathon in 1975, some five years before the first Dublin City Marathon, with just 12 athletes competing. Well, the route was from Finglas to Ashbourne. We started in Finglas Village and we went straight out the old Ashbourne Road, which was the old Dublin to Donegal Road. We went about three miles beyond Ashbourne, did a U-turn and came back. There was only 12 in the race, second and third one were club mates, Jim and Compower, they ran 2.30 and 2.31, so they were fairly good, they were good athletes. The course wasn't designed, obviously, for 2.10 marathon running, it was, this was, whoever came across the line was the champion and that was it. Well, people had ideas, like you wanted to break 2.30 for starters, running sub 2.40 was still regarded as a good marathon. You aimed for to break 2.30 and I knew if I 
by the time I'd go that it would put me in contention for the Olympic Games. So prior to that race, I had teamed up with Jim McNamara and we were doing training sessions which were totally unheard of of running 24 miles on the Saturday and 26 or 27 miles on the Sunday. So I noticed that an awful lot of runners couldn't get the distance. That was mainly because they weren't prepared to do the long runs. Doing the long runs takes an awful lot of mental strength because it means that you're, you're out for nearly three hours on the road. So that means if you go out on a run at 10 o'clock, you're not going to get back till one o'clock and there's not many runners could hack that and still can't and that's one of the reasons why the standard has dropped that myself and Jim McNamara had started that and we trained very hard that winter and I felt like he, he had a phenomenal run when he ran 2.14.56 in the national trial. I felt I should have run about 2.17 that day but I, I was very naive and I wore these very light shoes and my feet cut up very badly and in the end I had to settle with 2.21. Still was very good running for a 23 year old. And I had to laugh. Well, it's, you know, George Hamilton was there in Rio talking about the Olympics and about the, the gale and rope and a lot of holes in his string vest. And George came out and said, of course, you know who started off this? He said, Neil Cusick, when he wore the string vest in Boston, it was a string vest I got in Dunn's doors and saw the shamrocks onto it the night before. By the early 1970s, Irish athletics was on an upward curve. American colleges were signing up Irish athletes and at East Tennessee University, a Limerick man named Neil Cusick was making a huge impact. Cusick set an Irish 10,000 metre record at the 1972 Olympics, but unlike today, he was a young man when he first moved up to the marathon. Well, at the age of 19, five of us, we were over there for Christmas in Tennessee, and we probably hadn't the money to, to fly home, whatever, but we decided uh, we'd go down to Atlanta, Georgia to run a marathon, Peachtree Marathon. Uh, I was 19 at the time and uh, Patsy Dornan from Galway, PJ Lady, Eddie Lady, myself and this guy, Reverend George Khan, who brought us down in his Volvo estate. And uh, the night before, we were s- sitting around, Patsy Dornan said, for the crack, let's write down what times we think we'll run. So I wrote down 2.18 and he looked at me and he said, to say, for the love of Jesus, you're joking me. But I ran a world record for a 19-year-old, I ran 2 hours and 16 minutes, 18 seconds. Uh, and at that, I actually turned back once or twice. Eddie Lady was second. I wasn't good. So, so that gave me, I had the knowledge that I could run a fast one. In 1974, Neil Cusick became the first Irishman to win the Boston Marathon. To this day, Cusick remains the only Irish athlete to have broken the tape at the granddaddy of them all. And he remembers it very well. I'll tell you a good story about this one now. Um, Pat McMahon who lives in Springfield, Massachusetts. He was a teacher, well-retired now. He was second in 68. Alvaro May, a Mexican, beat him. I think it was a sprint finish. But he met me, the the corral, the top 40, 50, whatever, into the the school at Hopkinton. And um, he met me inside, and he came over, and he said to me, and he's great, Boston. I said, hey, Neil, how you doing? Pat McMahon here. I said, how are you, Pat? He said, said, how do you think you're going to do? I said, Pat, I think I'm going to win. And I could see the, the, the look on his face as if to say, you arrogant son of a bitch. <laughs> but I've met him several years gone back to, well, since I've gone back and stuff. And, you know, they're really throwing a big party. But the thing, it's a start, like, Heartbreak Hill is at 18 to 21. That makes it such a different marathon because you have a three-mile climb at a time when you're beginning to maybe fatigue slightly. And the crowds, it's lined from start to finish, and the crowds are just, and I know when you're running, you're so zoned in. As you get closer and closer to Boston, the crowds get thicker and thicker and thicker. And it finished at the Prudential Centre. I remember coming in around, there's a kind of a zigzag into the last mile. When you turn around and see the finish line, you're still about 800,000 metres to go. And it's just such a buzz when you're coming in. And I remember I could just get my hands up over my shoulders. And there's a great picture at home, actually, of me crossing the line. There's a, two policemen up and two horses beside me and a lot of horse manure down on the ground. <laughs> over 2,000 athletes from all over the country took part in the marathon. It started at noon in St. Stephen's Green and the runners made their way to the Phoenix Park Finglas, Rahini, Clontarf, Baldbridge, Donnybrook and returning again to St. Stephen's Green. 
first at the finishing post was Dick Hooper after 2 hours, 16 minutes and 14 seconds. He was followed by Neil Cusack of Limerick and John O'Flynn from Cork. I asked the winner how he felt about his victory. Best, best win of my life, I think. I think it was better than the National because there were so many people there to see it. It's more, it was more exciting. It's great to win in your own home city. And where does your career go from here? Well, it's back on course. I was worried after Moscow that I was... If I'd had a bad run today, I don't know where I would have turned. I needed today to get my confidence back. October 27, 1980, saw the very first Dublin City Marathon. Dick Hooper winning the first of what would be three titles. Unlike the previous marathons in Ireland, the build-up was very different for the first Dublin City Marathon. I asked Dick if the Dublin public were excited in 1980. Almost definitely. Uh, it was the first time I could remember in my life that a domestic athletics event got such a build-up. You see, RTE Radio 2 were sponsoring the race and for the, about the six months beforehand, they were blasting it out all the time that the Radio 2 Dublin City Marathon was coming up, that they were the sponsors. Every Monday night, Noel Carroll would be in for a special slot. Uh, I think it was the Jimmy Greeley show at the time. And people would be phoning in with their questions. And Noel was a great man to hype the event up. Um, and it got this constant build-up and advertising. And uh, it got live coverage on the day. And the media kind of picked up on it, you know, and gave it a blast. And I, it, as I recall... It was on the bank holiday Monday in October, and that was the very first bank holiday, October bank holiday Monday. It had just been invented or whatever you say about bank holidays. It had just been added to the calendar. So here was our first bank holiday, October bank holiday Monday, and here was an event for people to go watch and something to do on the bank holiday Monday. So it did attract huge numbers, and I have a recall of people, you know, dashing out of their houses. They were obviously inside listening to this radio commentary. The commentator was saying the race is approaching wherever it was approaching, coming down Collins's Avenue, down through Finglas, on down through Colester, in through Rohini and all that. And you could see the people coming out of their houses, dashing out to see it. And obviously then they stayed for the, the runners behind. And it was all the talk in the days after about the crowds that had come out to see the Dublin Marathon. And suddenly I was... I was this guy who won the first Dublin Marathon. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 I'm darn glad I went in that first Dublin Marathon. <laughs> Do you remember at what stage did you think that it was in the bag? Ah, yeah, I actually won well in the end. We, Neil Cusick had been running very well um, in the lead up to it. And I think they, a lot of people coupled with the fact that I wasn't too long coming off the Moscow race and that he'd raced well over the summer. And he was running faster than me over 10Ks. And he, he ran a particularly fast 10 mile up in Ballyshannon a few weeks before. So I think the, 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 the commentators were inclined to think he'd a fair old chance of winning it. And he had the pedigree, of course. So there was Neil Cusick and Mick Bourne and Jim Midlin and myself. So there was four of us um, got clear of the field pretty quick. And it turned into a right old Bourne up coming down off Collins Avenue. When we got to... Rohini was 15 miles that year, I remember, and myself and Jim Midlin went through Rohini together. Now, when it came down to myself and Jim, I was pretty confident I could win it because I had a reputation for finishing strongly. Jim had a, a record for struggling over the last six miles. Um, so, you know, I was in the ascendancy really from that point. If he hadn't got me broken by about 15, then the advantage was going to swing to me, and I was acutely conscious of that. Then, of course, I got the buzz and the adrenaline feed of going through Rohini. It, it, that year it went down Watermill Road and down onto the coast. So coming, I think I broke him somewhere around um, the bottom of Vernon Avenue on the way back in towards town. And so I ran, a, I, I must have run the last seven or eight miles on my own. And I was, I knew I was well clear. I was in control. Um, and I, I drank up the, the atmosphere that went with it. I was confident that at that day, once I had Jim broken, um, I wasn't getting any danger signs from behind people were telling me I had a couple of minutes lead and stuff like that and um, so I got a chance to really enjoy it and to to uh, you know appreciate what was happening and uh, the, the, it was just it was just one great day that I will never forget. Ireland had caught marathon fever and with the likes of the Hooper brothers Neil Cusick and Jerry Kiernan the Irish team was becoming increasingly strong. The 1984 national marathon also doubled as the Olympic trial. The record books record Dick Hooper as the national champion but as Dick explains, 
it wasn't that straightforward. For want of a better word, the king of the marathon uh, domestically at home. Then Jerry arrived and, you know, we ran for clubs that were uh, competitive with each other. He was Kerry, I was Dublin. He was south side, I was north side. There was loads of little rivalries there. Everybody considered that it would be a two-horse race, which it turned out to be. So he won the race by eight seconds in the end, and it was a, it was a right old battle. But anyway, we I do recall we were distinctly told beforehand we had to wear our club vests because I suppose Bailey were anticipating a few problems with that. And Jerry being Jerry decided that he wouldn't wear, uh, he was sticking with his, his sponsor's vest. And uh, shortly after the race, he was disqualified. I was told I was the national champion. But it just didn't feel right. I didn't feel that I, I hadn't won the race. He'd, he'd arrived there eight seconds before me. So at the presentation, then I gave him the medal. And uh, as I recall, the trophy. But it was quite an emotion charged thing. And I remember at the time it, it, it garnered a lot of headlines and we were on the news, the main news. And we were on, analysed it on the Monday, the equivalent of the Sean O'Rourke show and front page stuff on some of the papers and all this that... that what BLE had done to the winner of the national marathon and and everybody had a viewpoint on it and everybody took sides if it was around nowadays i'm sure we'd all be ringing up joe duffy to, to, to give our opinion jerry kiernan and dick hooper were selected for the olympic marathon of 1984 with john tracy hopes were high in ireland that the la olympics would be a success with medals returning on the plane peter byrne then olympic correspondent for the irish times recalls the build-up to LA 84. I was excited about them. Why was I excited? Because I thought after Moscow, there was a sour taste in Moscow, you know, with the boycott, the American boycott, whatever. I thought that Los Angeles would offer a chance of getting back. Like, And there was a great interest here about Los Angeles, primarily um, because with people like Eamon Coughlin, going well, having won the world championship in 83, and then there was John Tracy was around, and there was new kids coming through on the block, Marcus O'Sullivan, Ray Flynn, that era were coming on stream. So uh, there was a lot of potential, I thought, from an Irish point of view. However, the Irish Olympic Challenge in LA failed to materialise, John Tracy finishing ninth in the 10,000 metres. Demoralised, Peter Byrne explains how the Irish press correspondents geared up for the final day of the Los Angeles Olympics. The question for, for most of us was, were we going to go to the closing ceremony that night or were we going to go for a few beers uh, and watch the ceremony on television coming home the next day or the day after that? Down to the stadium, uh, as much just to tidy up and get some documents that we needed, results and that, from the previous day, and uh, watching the television, uh, and there, to our amazement, was Tracy running in the marathon. That was the first inclination that we got, really, that he was going to turn up. Not only was he running in the marathon, he was running with the, the leaders. With John Tracy suddenly making an impression in the marathon, another Irish singlet appeared at the front of the race. in spotting how far behind the leading group other people were, and uh, he, he seemed to me to come from absolutely nowhere. Well, he's the Irish champion, the Irish cross-country champion. He suddenly found a niche for himself. He uh, sneaked up from behind or was buried there, and we hadn't seen him, but uh, Jerry Kiernan is certainly there for Ireland at the moment. My memory was how hot it was. My memory was going to Santa Monica, which is where we raced. Uh, we started in Santa Monica, and we ran into the Coliseum on the bus, sitting alongside Shahanga from Tanzania. He had a tracksuit zipped up. I was wearing as little clothing as possible because it was so, so warm. And I remember warming up, feeling very good warming up, but I remember pouring water over myself, just drenching myself in water and being dry within seconds. And I was thinking to myself, this is going to be a long, long day. And when the race started at quarter past five uh, in the evening time, we did two laps of Santa Monica. The first lap, we did two laps, two laps of the track. And the first lap around 75 seconds, which was for five-minute miling pace. And the second lap, again in 75 seconds. That's right, this is the pace I'm going to run at until I can no longer run at this pace. And that's exactly the way it was. Five miles, 25 minutes, 10 miles, 50.04, 20 miles, 159, 139.52. It was all comfortable, really. It all felt comfortable, except the one thing which kind of stymied my marathon career was always, I was always 
prone to cramping because I kind of slapped the ground a little bit. I was always, I was always, I mean, if the marathon was held on, let's say, on grass, on manicured, on, uh, uh, on golf course type grass, I would never have had, had an issue at all. So when I got to 20 miles, I was with a group of probably the, some of the greatest runners ever in the marathon. And I was really feeling comfortable, really comfortable in charge of everything, except my legs were cramping. And then at 21 miles, then Charlie Spedding put in a, a bit of a break. And I was going to go with the break and suddenly, suddenly got a cramp and had to back off. So what I effectively was doing over the last five miles was running at about 5, 10 miling pace. Because to run faster than that would have meant problems. And I knew from experience that if I got a cramp, I wouldn't finish. And I had to finish. I had to finish. Actually, when I finished, I thought I finished 10th. So it was, a, it was a pleasant surprise to be told I finished 9th. And then I looked at my watch for probably the first time in the whole race and saw 2.12.19. And then to say to myself, well, a PB in, what, 85, 90 degrees, you know. And in the biggest race. And in the biggest race ever, you know. That was pretty gratifying, you know. And then, of course, typically with me, within, I suppose, half an hour, a whole series of what ifs came in, you know, because I looked at Charlie spitting afterwards, thinking, you know, what did he have that I didn't have? Why couldn't I beat him? Why couldn't I have been higher up, you know? So, in one respect, before the race, if, if I was told top 10, I take it. After the race, thinking, nah, I'm better than that, you know? So, and immediately afterwards, as well, I said, okay, I, I, I can win a medal uh, in four years' time. But in four years' time, I dropped out of the trials, you know? So, that's the way, carpe diem, you know? With Jerry Kiernan finishing ninth in what would have been Ireland's greatest performance in the Olympic marathon, John Tracy rode himself into folklore as he landed the silver medal. While surprising the world, the two-time World Cross Country champion had it planned out all along. 1983, I went back to the States, having struggled for a couple of years. We were all kind of training together. It was a group of us, maybe about 20 of us training together, trying to make the Olympic team and what have you. Some were training for make the American team, others the Irish team and what have you. I went to the, the World Cross Country that year and, and finished uh, 12th, I think, or 13th in, in New York, which was a decent enough run at the time. I was happy with it, and I was definitely on the way back. But I was doing all the all the VO2 maxes and all that, and everything was leaning towards the marathon because of my economy and my efficiency. And um, so I went down to New Rochelle and ran a half marathon and then tagged down another six or seven miles on the back of it. And uh, a very hilly course and took it well and recovered very well from it. And so BLE at the time and the wisdom selected me along with Dick and Jerry. And uh, then I went and ran 13, 16 for 5,000 metres. And I says, oh shit, <laughs> I can do it at 10,000 metres after all. <laughs> and that didn't, you know, I was ninth in the final. And um, so I went into the marathon with sore calves. I haven't run two 10,000 metres. Look, in spikes, come on. And I could feel my calves sore for the first 5K and I was following people. I, You know, like I was really, what I would actually just say to you is this, I was really well prepared. Like I was doing 29 mile runs. 26 mile runs were kind of normal. Right, in training. So I had, like, I, I wasn't telling people what I was doing, but I had prepared for a marathon. And really, the only kind of difference that I had made was I had extended the long run. Instead of doing 21 miles, I'd gone to 25 or 26 miles in training. And sure, you know, it's, it's remarkable in those days. You'd be clipping along and you'd be running, you'd run 242 for 26 miles in training. Easy, chatting to people like it just kind of just shows you the kind of shape that we were in at the time you know like that's what you'd be running you know you'd be chatting away to people now that'd be easy running right chatting away to people and, and doing that but I remember I remember in June of that year doing a 29 miler in a very hot night and I ran 10 miles with Richard O'Flynn at the start and then I ran another whatever it was 19 miles with another group of people but just it's putting yourself through that type of type of thing. When the marathon, I was in the marathon and uh, I was following Salazar early on, realised very quickly he wasn't going well and then I followed Di Castella. So I was just following uh, early on and then around halfway I found myself open to leaders and in the lead and I said, oops, get back into that pack. And I got back into the pack, so I followed. So essentially what I did was follow because I didn't have the experience and basically my kind of idea was to say, Stay with the pack, 
until you fucking collapse, excuse the expression. And that's what I was trying to do. And lo and behold, people started dropping off. Charlie, myself and Lopez were left. And then Lopez moved and then Charlie, myself, fought it out over the last, over the last, um, last couple of miles. And I was trying to drop Charlie before I came into the stadium because I wanted to enjoy the moment in the stadium. They're going for silver, they're going for bronze. John Tracy has 100 metres to go. In the past, Ireland have won bronze medals. John Caldwell, Freddie Gilroy, Sax Byrne, Jim McCourtney Russell. They've won gold. Pat O'Callaghan twice. Bob Tessel, Ron Delaney. They've won silvers with John McNally, Fred Teeth, Wilkinson, Wilkinson. And for the 13th time, an Irish medal goes to John Tracy. The crowd stand to the Irishman from Villiers Town and Waterford. The little man with a great heart. I would have liked to have gone into the stadium and enjoyed the experience around on the stadium to be quite honest but it was all it was all down to the fight to, for a silver medal and um, but I think the remarkable thing afterwards when I did come back to Ireland everyone was congratulating me on my win they had forgotten that Lopez had won and that I was f- fighting for a second but everyone said I won because I'd beaten Charlie in the, in the stadium so We'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. With it well after midnight in Ireland and the stewards holding John Tracy up on the track, for sports journalists, including Peter Byrne, their working day was only beginning. It's now something like quarter to two in the morning, Irish time, coming up to two o'clock. And uh, the first edition is gone, the, city, the country edition in the time, so that's out. But the, the city edition, the Dublin edition, would be off to stone and ready to go uh, to, to be printed somewhere around half two, twenty to three. So get on to the office. Normally, there would be copy takers there. You dictate the story to them. And he said, "Look, there's nobody here by, by me." He said, "You're over there." And I said, "Can you dictate a story for me?" Just now, he said, "Not in five minutes." No, I said, "Okay." Uh, so off he went and and. I was delighted because that was the kind of challenge I loved on big nights in sport, to be able to do it, to respond to a situa- an unexpected situation. Uh, years later, I remember covering the world, uh, European Cup final w- 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 between Manchester United and Bayern Munich in, in Barcelona. Same thing happened and had to change course in the last minute. Same thing here. So I dictated uh, the story. Even more remarkably, they put it on the front page of the Irish Times with a carryover inside. Now, to that point, sport, to my recollection, had never, ever appeared on the front page of the Times. Never. And they tossed so much of the story that they ran across eight columns on top of the, uh, the page one and then carried it over and uh, they were apparently very happy with this. And I was, and it had come so unexpected. You know, if, if you're expecting these things, it's great and it happens, brilliant. But when it, it's not expected. When I look back on, on my uh, career in sport and, and sports reporting and sports writing, I would look back at John Tracy's run in, in Los Angeles that day as one of the great examples of great courage, as I say, class and commitment. A wonderful ambassador for our country was John Tracy. While Dick Hooper's race didn't go to plan, the result at the front of the race caught the Dubliner out, as John Tracy recalls. <laughs> and I love Dick, as you know, and, uh, and Paddy. I, I consider both of them really, really good friends. And, and now I don't blame Dick for this. Dick, Dick walked up to me after the race and said, how'd you get on? And I said, second. And he looked at me, and he asked me again, how did I get on? And I said, second, and he just kind of walked away from me. And then I saw him asking someone else. <laughs> Winner of the silver medal, representing Ireland, Olympic champion John Tracy. And that is the first medal of any kind for Ireland in these games. John Tracy from Waterford County, where the crystal comes from. Juan Antonio Samaran, the president of the IOC, giving him his silver medal. 1984 saw the very first women's Olympic marathon. Regina Joyce and Carrie May both wearing the green singlet in Los Angeles. 
In Cavan, Katrina McKiernan was just starting her athletics career at this time. I grew up on a farm in Cavan and I'm the youngest of seven and to be honest, there wasn't really much to do. Uh, the girls played camogie, the boys played football and uh, just from a very young age I ran around the fields just for this year enjoyment and feeling of well-being that it gave me. Um, I had no anticipation to run races or anything like that. I just did laps and laps of the field and just just enjoyed it. I was always very active and I'm the youngest of seven, as I said, and if we wanted to go somewhere, we either had to run or jump on the bike and, and go. And I remember going into swimming lessons on the bike, which was about four and a half miles away, and do the swimming lessons and back again, four and a half miles, and going into camogie training in Cavan, which was eight and a half miles away. So I'd cycle in and cycle back home again and do the training. So I was building up a great aerobic fitness from a very young age. And I didn't really get into running then until my last year at secondary school. There was an athletics club formed and supposed to get out of school more than anything else. I joined and I won the Ulster schools cross country and then went on to win the All Ireland schools. That was in 1988. And it was, it was you know, after that race, I realised that I had a talent for running and, and a great love for running. I just co- coached myself for those races and just used to run around the fields at, at lunchtime and then also uh, when I come home from school <coughs> the, I knew the race was 3,000 metres long for the All-Ireland Schools Cross Country so I reckoned it would take me about 10 minutes or so so I used to warm up for a little bit and then run as fast as I could for 10 minutes and that was my training every evening and maybe as I said at lunchtime I'd do that as well so you know I was very naive as regards training but uh, I just just loved running. McKiernan would go on to claim four World Cross Country Silver Medals and win the first European Cross Country Championship. Moving on to the marathon, McKiernan would win the 1997 Berlin Marathon with the fastest ever debut time for a female and then win the 98 London Marathon. I asked Katrina how her training had changed for her marathon assault. 97 actually, after the World Cross Country in 97, but you know, it was something that was always going to all was going to happen. I remember the first time I went into Trinity to get tested on the treadmill with the VO2 max test and it was probably, I was 18 or 19 at that stage and that evening they said that, you know, marathon was the distance that was going to suit me but, you know, I did the cross country and all the other stuff, the faster stuff before that. So in 97 then, after the world cross country, I think it was, seventh or something like that or sixth I'm not so sure and I decided after that like you know it was after having after winning four silvers and then going to sixth or seventh so it was time to to make a change so it was after that was on in I don't know in Italy somewhere the the world cross country and it was then I decided to to do a marathon and Berlin then was the first one in September. Just as well how much did your training really have to change because I'm sure your your mileage was or in around a hundred mile mark before you went in up to the training. No, it wasn't for cross country. I was doing because those races were only six thousand meters, and even some of the Grand Prix races were five five and a half thousand meters. So my mileage was about seventy miles a week. But there was a lot of quality in that, um, and even you know the easy runs. I'm not so sure how easy they were because they were up and down hills. Um, so then you know when I started doing the marathons, yeah, I put up the mileage to 100, 110,000, or 100, <laughs> 110 miles a week, yeah, yeah. But it was it was much, much more enjoyable sort of training than the, the short, snappy, fast stuff that I was doing for, for cross-country and for track. I much more enjoyed it. It was longer, at a little bit of a slower pace, and that suited me. I was, you know, I was in control of the training. This is the part of the story I don't like to tell you. From 1992 until 2008, Ireland failed to qualify an athlete for the Olympic marathon. Mullingar Harriers Martin Fagan failing to finish the Beijing Olympic marathon and then failing a drugs test just eight months before the London Games. However, there is no doubt that this standard in Irish marathon running collapsed in the early 90s. I first asked Pat Hooper why he believed the standard collapsed. I, I firmly believe that the standard of coaching is very poor. And there's no coach would come out, go out and get his athletes to, to, to do the train of 21 miles on a Friday, 24 miles on a Saturday, and 27 miles plus 
on a Sunday and that's the type of training that you need to, to get athletes up to that level. Secondly, I think uh, a lot of athletes take up the marathon far too late uh, in their careers when uh, they're not able to give it the time due to family circumstances and basically having, as you said yourself, burning themselves out of 5 and 10k runners. But I would say basically the, the number one point is that most runners are not prepared to do the hard training. And uh, hard training, what I mean is running uh, regularly, runs over 20 miles plus because 10 by a mile is not the same as running for two hours, two and a half hours plus. And it takes a certain mindset to be able to do that. And when runners, you have to get it into your head that 20 miles is not a long run. And when you get that long run started, anything over 24 miles, and you have to get that into your mindset if you want to be a a good marathon runner. I asked Dick Hooper the same question. Yeah, there's loads of theories about that. My my theories are pretty are pretty simple. Um, I think that r- runners went soft in their in their thinking and in their willing to do, willingness to do the work and their training, and the coaches didn't encourage them to get involved in the marathon in the way that they should have. Um, and a whole. A whole generation, really, of of prospective marathon runners was lost to the sport through any, you know, basically through a, a tardiness and a, and a, a lack of direction and a lack of interest in it, and athletes simply not seeing um, the opportunity, or dare I say, not wanting the opportunity because maybe they were distracted. And the Celtic Tiger has been mentioned, and I I subscribe to that view. I think the Celtic Tiger ruined this country from so many perspectives um, and one of them was that it, it made people less willing to work hard for simple things in life Now settled into a coaching role, Dick, backed by the Dublin Marathon organisers, is part of an initiative called Marathon Mission Since Marathon Mission was founded in the run-up to London 2012 it has helped 10 Irish athletes on the road to the 2012 Games and to Rio 2016 you know, there was a softening there and there was a lack of direction and there was a lack of recognition of opportunity. But I go back to the thing, really, athletics is a, is a is an individual sport. And if somebody wants something out of the sport, they surely should see where opportunity lies and, and go after it, you know. And I think that's what we've succeeded in doing with Marathon Mission in that we've got people thinking now, there's opportunity for me, there's 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 a chance for me to qualify for a major games or you know do something different or imagine sean Hare winning the dublin marathon three years ago you know um i would say 10 years ago the equivalent of a sean Hare wouldn't have even bothered going in the event you know and i've seen how hard the sean Hares and the mcclossies and the sean Connollys and these fellas work when they put their head down and go for it and, and what they can achieve and there's a bucket load of those type of people out there you know so it's it baffles me that we had that drought. I hope it's over. And um, because I think what we've got now is we've got a decent standard, but not a great standard back into the event. But the great standard should come because the decent standard is back and out of the decent standard will come great performances. You know, sure. a bit like the way Tracy produced it after. We paved the way for Tracy. You know, a lot of people who had, who had kind of qualified for games and runners that John Tracy probably would have considered ordinary type runners and he could see well gee they're they're qualifying for this that and the other and here am I and and bang he comes out and produces the performance that you know put him on a different level and I hope that there's another John Tracy in Irish Athletics somewhere there that'll do the same pretty shortly again. Rohini Shamrock's Mick Clossy, an Olympian in 2016 was one of those athletes assisted by Marathon Mission. His own athletics career wasn't as fluid as people believe. I was Straight out of when I stopped playing football, I was 19 and that, and I was getting really in serious in the running. And then I had four or five years of kind of making cross-country teams, national teams, and I was progressing. But then I kind of stagnated. I'd gotten a bit, I'd kind of just got a bit tired of the sport, really. I was just a bit, just wanted to do other things, you know, and take a break. But I, I think um, looking back on it, it was probably a good thing because it kind of gave me that kind of uh time out but then I kind of realised yes, I, I want to get back into this and I never totally stopped running you know I was on a bit of running so I suppose 
as we've said talking before to each other you know at least I didn't totally stop so I always had that bit of fitness and I knew I'd let it come back naturally and then you know having the likes of Dick and Pat and that they'd always encourage me and they always knew that you know it was always there for me to come back and the club is there so like I was I never actually left the club I was always part I was still doing the odd race so it's good to have that support there and Dick always said to me the door's open you know you've you've got potential here so and I knew that when it when when the time came I would let it come and one thing led to another and that's you know as I said I got the hunger back and then the confidence comes and then you start enjoying it and it just keeps going from there so you just take it as it comes really. While Rio 2016 didn't go the way Klausi would have liked, to his great credit, Klausi finished the race, something that was trained into him as a young athlete. I've kind of, you kind of get it ingrained in you, I suppose, from Dick being my coach as well, and my dad, and that we'd, you know, we'd, we'd always say never drop out and finish it is important, and Dick has always emphasised that, and he never dropped out of a marathon, and... Um, like it was when I when I realised things weren't going well in the second half and I kind of felt like I was running on empty and I felt like I was, it was all about just seeing it out, getting to the finish line and getting it done. But there was, you know, it does cross your mind, but I knew that I'd regret it big time. And I was just thinking, you know, my dad has come down, my cousin, my uncle, Dick, all, come, all made the trip to Rio and then everyone back home. And, you know, people, it meant, it meant a lot when... You know, people really, when they saw me crossing the line, I suppose, I didn't realise it, but people were still very kind of proud of me and stuff. And I, at the time, I was just disappointed with my run, but it, it does mean, I think it stands to you that you finished it out because dropping off, dropping out, is it can be the easy option and you can make up excuses then. So, I mean, I didn't enjoy really running in. I felt like I was jogging. I felt it was the first time I've experienced that in a marathon, but that's part of the marathon because my first three had gone so well. So, I mean... You learn from them ones more than that, and so I, I think it was it was good that I, I grinded it out. And, yeah. Do you find yourself under pressure, Rohini, of such a, a marathon tradition that you're part of now? You're the, did that add any pressure to you, or did you feel it at all that you're you're coming from such a, a club with such a tradition? Um, I wouldn't say really from that. Like, I mean, I suppose I put pre- the pressure on myself to keep performing. I want to keep improving. Let's get the most out of what I can see, how far I can take it the next few years. Because I mean, it's it's a sh- short window as as your dad and his and dick the two the two brothers always remind me and they've had you know it is a great tradition in the club and i'd like to try and extend to it and i yeah i suppose it's nice to have that there because it kind of spurs you on and i, I mean i love hearing advice from your dad from pat and from dick as well and because they've been there and i mean obviously it means a lot to them as well to see the tradition being carried on and hopefully there's other people coming through so i kind of enjoyed it the challenge as well of you know i mean i'd like to try and get down as close as I can to Dick's time and that's the name and Dick Dick wants me to do that as well so we're all kind of in it together so and I mean the club is brilliant you know it's so much support right through the club and it's, it's the club has grown as well all the time so it's it's, it's nice to it's nice feeling you know With Classy, Paul Pollock and Sean Hare heading to the 2017 World Championships in London Irish Marathon running is on its second coming and continuing on the road to Tokyo as someone else looks to emulate John Tracy. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.